The cyber landscape is constantly evolving, creating new challenges and opportunities to defend against sophisticated attacks. At Northrop Grumman, we provide a wide range of capabilities to stay ahead of these threats. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com backslash cyber. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Later in the program, a look at the major cyber deadlines bearing down on the national security community. But first, our good friend, Dr. Jim Lewis of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, one of uh, the world's leading cyber strategists. Jim, it's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for having me on the show. Before we get started, a word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS. Sponsors our global coverage and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Sponsors our coverage of strategy and our coverage at the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show was sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries and GE Marine, while our naval coverage is sponsored by Fincantieri Marinette Marine. I want to start where the administration is. Um, obviously, it's hit the ground uh, running. You've been kind enough to join us and talk uh, at, at some length about uh, what they are doing, what they need to do. Uh, Jen Easterly uh, now uh, finally is aboard at the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. Uh, she's really been taking the bull by the horns uh, in many respects as the broader debate in Washington unfolds about is CISA at the center of it? Uh, is the White House at the center of it? Chris Inglis also has been getting out there and talking more. How do you grade where the administration is and what's your advice to them? What are they getting right? What do they need to be doing better? Well, it is a very strong team, as you know. And so that's a real plus. And I think the roles are slowly sorting out. Jen inherits uh, a much stronger CISA because of Chris Krebs' work. But she's got some real challenges, and I think she's started to identify them. There's a focus on critical infrastructure that is certainly DHS's role. Um, they have limits on their authorities. That's something Congress could think about. They are looking, I'm pretty sure, at the issue of how much they need to require in the way of mandatory action, whether it's reporting or meeting some sort of standards. So Thinking about mandatory action is a crucial part of her job and working with NIST to come up with uh, standards, updated standards or new standards. So she has a lot to do, but she has a much stronger hand uh, in, in doing this. And I should point out that uh, Jen and Tim Maurer, who's in the secretary's office, were both on the transition team together. So you've got a, a good mind meld between DHS senior leadership and Jen. And that's a real plus, but we'll see where they go. Her, her step in creating a new private sector group uh, is important because the private sector has the ability to do things that the government can't and that we wouldn't want the government to do. Uh, I, so I'm very positive about her, but she's going to have to confront this issue of what should be mandatory. What do they need from Congress in the way of new authorities? Um, I, I want to get to Congress in a minute, but I want to pick up uh, on uh, the, the cost uh, piece of it. Uh, I'm at a conference today. In fact, I'm, uh, we're doing this program from the sidelines of it, the Sucker Punch uh, Conference, and John Cofrancesco of Fortress uh, Information Security who's going to join us later in the program was, was one of the speakers. And one of the challenges is that there's going to be added cost across the entire ecosystem. I know that that's a problem for smaller companies. Uh, it's also a, a problem and a challenge for big companies. The reality is the Chinese are, as a good uh, friend put it, 
Um, it's great that we're filling the bucket. The problem is the bucket's got a hole in the bottom of it and half of the water that's coming and, and a lot of that water that's coming out of the hole is pouring into China's bucket, right? How do we need to address the cost piece of this equation as we move forward? Because folks are getting, little guys are getting scared, big guys are getting scared. And then the whole infrastructure is so riddled with Chinese technology that's reporting back home all the time. This is a massive problem and is likely to cost more money than less money. How do we need to think about money at a time when um, Congress looks like it's willing to spend money on infrastructure, maybe not this piece of the infrastructure, but how do we need to think about the magnitude of the challenge and what it's gonna cost us to fix? Because I don't think anybody's estimating costs, nor are they talking as realistically about the magnitude of the problem. I think the administration has taken some pretty good steps in this direction. The first is the May executive order which when it goes into effect, and if it works, will lead to better products, right? It will lead to fewer vulnerabilities. And so I think taking that big picture approach of make the big guys write better code and the little guys will benefit because they can buy it. That's a good first step. I think that some of the efforts to swap Chinese technology out of the supply chain where FCC and others have done a great job uh, are making real progress. So I'm I'm a little more optimistic. I think the levers here are, we all know who the big companies are that support the IT infrastructure. Uh, get them to clean up their act, uh, to pick up the pace. And the little guys will benefit from that. So this isn't a question of, does the federal government need to subsidize? It's a question of how does the federal government get the companies like Microsoft or Amazon or Google, uh, some of the others to, um, start thinking about security in a more granular way, in a way that will make them better. They, they've all done a great job, so they're all better. But I think focusing on code is the way to do this. Uh, better coding means more security. Does anybody have a good estimate as to what it's going to cost to improve security, both in a software, from software and hardware perspective? It's probably not as expensive as people think. And so a good model to look at would be the rip and replace legislation where FCC funded the smaller companies to take Huawei and ZTE out of their networks. And that was, it was a few billion dollars, right? Uh, this will take time, um, but I don't think, we can't just do it overnight. We can't wave a magic wand and say, everyone get rid of your Hikvision camera. Let's um, create the incentives for companies to move in the right direction. And I think this will be cleared up in, in a year or two without requiring a lot of federal expenditure. Um, speaking of federal expenditure, wow, that was a great segue, Jim. Um, I wanted to ask you about the infrastructure uh, measure. Obviously, uh, $1.2 trillion is uh, sort of the baseline one. Uh, Democrats uh, want uh, several trillion dollars in additional spending as well. We'll see where, where that part of it goes. But when it comes to infrastructure, what are the elements of this, of where we are now that you like and where are, where are lawmakers getting it wrong, right? I mean, as it goes into conference, the House will have a say on it. So obviously there's, there's an opportunity to address shortcomings. You, you know, I haven't done as much work on this, honestly. I'm going to be talking to some staffers after this call. But, you know, the fact that Congress is willing to at least talk about spending money as a step in the right direction. We've shortchanged uh, cybersecurity, we've shortchanged national security, 
uh, for decades. And so people talk about it's a lot of money. It is a lot of money if you look at it as a one-off, but if you think of it as catching up for 20 years of under expenditure, it's actually not that much. So, you know, I think a focus of combining some of the work on 5G, some of the work on broadband, uh, some of the work on critical infrastructure resilience, um, they'll be expensive, but not prohibitively so. So that's where I think the infrastructure bill it's long overdue and it can only make things better. Uh, people don't recognize that it's an investment. It's not, a, it's not just spending for fun. And I was gonna be a little critical of the last four administrations um, and the Congresses that accompanied them. Um, they didn't do the things they needed to do to build our infrastructure, to keep it strong. When bridges start falling down, it's a hint, right? And so I think people have figured that out. We owe the Chinese a vote of thanks because with the competition with China, people have suddenly realized that you can't keep nickel and diming national security. And that goes beyond one of the things that's hard is we spend as much more, we spend as much as the next 10 countries combined when it comes to our defense budget, but that's not the things that are gonna make us safe. So uh, the infrastructure bills a move in the right direction. Uh, there's this sense, as, as you rightly put, Jim, uh, that, you know, China's infrastructure, right, they've got high speed trains, they've got new bridges, uh, you, you know, our buildings are collapsing, bridges are rickety. And, and so that has a tendency of focusing the mind. And as you said, right, competitiveness is drawn in a variety of ways, including your institutions, your scientific infrastructure, your education system, et cetera, all of things that China has been working on. But also now we have in sharper focus, obviously, cyber vulnerabilities, whether it's on uh, the ransomware side of things or actually the active penetrations, uh, which we've talked about many times. And you and I have talked a lot about uh, ransomware and, and, and how to address it. There is increasing focus, though, on the insurance part of this and what should be insurable, what's not insurable, what you should report, how you should report it. Obviously the Cyber uh, uh, Space Solarium Commission worked on, on some of those uh, standards and you certainly advised them on it. From an insurance standpoint, there, is now, there are now a whole series of emerging debates about how it is we go about doing it. How, it, how, do, how do the incentives piece of this need to work on our end? Because we've talked about all of the things that we can do externally, but a lot of this also is at home. Debates in ransomware are over changing the incentives for the victims. And so we know now that most victims pay and they don't tell. Uh, should they be required to tell? Probably not a bad idea, right? Um, should they be prevented from paying? That's a good debate. Uh, I think some people say the answer is yes. Uh, you know, the flip side is if the only answer we have is don't pay, um, it's a good test. I mean, there's an argument that, well, if, if companies don't pay, the ransomware people will simply move on and go to the next victim. Don't know, but I think that's one of the questions is, how do we approach the ability to pay? There's a bunch of things you can do on ransomware. Some of it is feeding back to the larger cybersecurity issue. Most of this is a rocket science and people, there's basic things people can do. Some of it is changing the incentive structure um, maybe insurance companies say, um, raise your rates if you haven't taken some of these basic steps, like having data backup, right? Um, or or multi-factor authentication. And then there's this question of, of what do you do on payment? The payment part, 
we've focused on on the domestic side. We need to focus more on the international side, which is can you damage the financial networks and the command and control networks that the ransomware people depend on? They're using exchanges that are outside of Russia. They're using infrastructure that's outside of Russia. And those are good targets for law enforcement. So we'll, we'll need a coherent strategy. It can't just be saying people shouldn't pay and you know we're mad at the Russians. Working with the Russians, working against the Russians has been useful. And that's one thing this administration has gotten right. But we need to take it a step further and say, um, how do we change the incentives for companies to improve their security against ransomware and to improve their ability to weather the hit if it comes? We have a tendency when it, you know, we, we always think about the uh, Chinese uh, and then, you know, the Russians sees headlines, whether it's with solar winds or election tampering or active disinformation and all the ransomware stuff, unprecedented ransomware attacks. And then the, the focus tends to be on, on the Russians. Uh, and obviously, solar winds was was a profound information breach. But then the Chinese had uh, have had their own successes. And indeed, the half name attack may have actually dwarfed and appears to have dwarfed even solar winds, which was which was pretty bad. Is there an uptick in Chinese activity, or is there a greater recognition of Chinese activity? Because I hate to say this, right? There isn't a lot of there is Russian code in our systems that people have downloaded from here and there, or used it as a shortcut, or just copied and pasted. Whereas there's quite a lot of Chinese hardware, right? Not a lot of Russian hardware uh, in our in our systems, and it was just seen as generic componentry and there are the part numbers of of major primes on some of these systems or subsystems but actually the guts and uh, not to you know go back to tom hanks and you know sony guts you know it may have huawei guts or zte guts and i know that people are trying to get out of it are, are the number of chinese attacks going up or are we more recognizing the amount of chinese attacks one thing that's changed is the nature of cyber hacking attacks, whatever you want to call them, in that as we've moved to a world where the cloud and software as a service provided by third parties has become a part of business, the attackers have moved to going after the service providers, right? And so if you capture the updater of somebody who's supporting 17,000 companies, you get 17,000 companies from one hack. So part of it is just the change in how people do this now. Go after the service providers. Um, the second part is we're more aware of it than we were. This, this Chinese hacking has been going on for more than a decade, right? The first big hacks were really um, right after the Chinese connected to the internet in the early 2000s. And then of course you had the Google incident in 2010 that was a hint. Google came out and said we were hacked, but 78 other big Fortune 100 companies didn't admit it. So the Chinese have been doing this for a long time. We're just more aware. And the nature of hacks has changed. So you go after these big targets like SolarWinds or Hafnium because you get uh, a much better payoff. Um, I'm not as worried about Chinese technology in our networks. The Chinese, of course, freak out because we have a, an integrated supply chain. So they look and they see uh, they're dependent on American technology. It drives them wild. And what we're slowly doing is um, decoupling this integrated supply chain. It will take a while. 
Um, but the risk is probably equally distributed. We know a lot about China. They know a lot about us. Um, right now, I'd say the Chinese have an edge, but that has less to do with the access they've got to IT and our dependence on China and our supply chain and more with some of the mistakes we've made over the last 10 years. Let me ask one last question about decoupling. You know, I remember being at the Halifax uh, forum and talking to a cyber expert there, and he said, look, the, the great thing about sanctions on Russia is it's, it's sort of constrained Russia's access uh, to Western t- technology. I think it was Rohan Rohajinsky who, who said that. Um, he said the problem is the Russians have actually addressed that within their own ecosystem where they're developing now and getting much, much better uh, at all of the things that they've been cut off from. So in every one of these ecosystems, whoever is cut off from the technology tends to get good at it. What happens in a world where you've sort of cut the Chinese off, they've developed their own capability? What are the downsides of that? I mean, are there downsides of that? Well, that's their intent. It's not like we're the ones who came up with the idea of decoupling. The Chinese want indigenous technology. And their goal has been to squeeze Western companies out, uh, at least since Xi Jinping came into power. So the Chinese want decoupling that gets left out of the, the movie script. You know, I, my view is that we should, as long as we can make money off of China without undue risk, we should continue to do so. But all of the, the programs that work in all the companies that work in China now know they have a finite lifespan when the Chinese will try and squeeze them out. Um, that's the goal of Chinese tech policy, right? Uh, for us, um, we will need to rebuild some of the lower end things that went to China. Low cost supplier, great, send uh, diodes and other microelectronics below the level of chips. Let the Chinese make them stuff that we dominated the market in, in the 1970s. Still part of every, every big system, but we will have to bring that back. And that might mean either working with other friendly countries like Mexico or Vietnam or India. It might mean bringing stuff back here. But um, the question is really cost, not uh, technology skills. The Chinese can't make chips, but we can make microelectronics. That will change over time. So, you know, a bifurcated supply chain There'll still be contacts. I mean, the Chinese are in, the Chinese want access to the Western market. Of course, they want access to Western intellectual property. So they'll get rid of our technology to make themselves more secure, but they'll want continued connections. And we should think carefully about continued connections might be in our interest sometimes. This isn't, we don't need to take a meat cleaver to the relations between the two countries, at least not yet. We may come to that, but we're not there now. Jim, uh, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks. Talk to you soon. And another word from our sponsors. GM Defense sponsors our coverage of technology. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. The GovMates Institute held its first in-person conference since the COVID pandemic, Sucker Punch, reevaluating your supply chain. And joining us is one of the speakers at and one of the sponsors of the conference, John Cofrancesco of Fortress Information Security. John, thanks so very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me back. Uh, it's, an, it's an absolute uh, pleasure. It was a great uh, conference. Uh, and you reminded the audience that there are actually a vast array of ticking clocks in the wake of President Biden's cyber uh, executive order that he signed uh, in May, all very good things 
but stuff that people aren't paying attention to, right? What are the dates that folks in the national security community need to be focused on? Because it's actually not CMMC. If you're thinking CMMC, for most of us, you're still three, four, five years out from having this really burden you. Not to say you shouldn't be doing the right things right now, but you've got some time. With this new executive order on cybersecurity, you're about eight months, so less than one pregnancy away from really having to supply a software bill of material for critical items. So this is really important if you're somebody who supplies software, somebody who integrates software. So that's really the first major date you should be concerned with. For folks who don't know you, you've got two two young kids. You want to have more uh, uh, more uh, on the way, but I think it's interesting that that's what you've used as your uh, time uh, yardstick and everybody in the audience thought that that was funny as well. What are some other dates that people need to be bearing in mind? One of those babies already here to continue on with that analogy, uh, and that's the NDAA 889. That's so most folks have already signed uh, I think the overwhelming majority of the folks that hold GSA uh, contracts have already signed that they're compliant with that. That so you ought to be checking that. But really, the two big ones, the ones that you that are going to be biting you, the NDA eight eighty nine Part A Part B, and then the cybersecurity EO eight months out now from having to deliver S bombs. There are several that follow that. Uh, that follow a number of DOD policies, but those are the two. If you're a big business or small business, you should be eyeing because these are the two that can get you in a lot of trouble, also pose uh, some decent opportunity for for companies who are going to go out there and do the right things. As we are a uh, podcast that likes to bridge the divide between the cyber cyber community and the cyber strategy community, uh, which includes uh, flag general officers and other leaders who may not be as steeped in the acronyms. Uh, first, talk to us about SBOM and 889 for the audience that uh, may not uh, fully appreciate what both of those are. Yeah, but so these issues are really two sides of the same coin. So the NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act 889, Uh, Section A and B basically says, hey, don't put Chinese garbage in our hardware. We don't want things from Huawei or ZTE or Daiwa. And by the by, if you're doing business with somebody who's using that nonsense, we still don't want to do business with you. So this is a regulation that's designed to keep our hardware supply chains cleansed of, of really adversarial stuff. The software side of this is really driven from the executive order that President Biden recently signed on cybersecurity. And this says, hey, in the same respects as we don't want you to put uh, bad Chinese things into our hardware, we don't want you to put Chinese or Russian things into our software. And we're going to validate that you haven't done that by making you supply an ingredients list. And the the term that's used in, in, in industry for that ingredient list is software bill of material. So you have to tell them what components you've used uh, to actually construct your software. So let me talk to you a little bit about that, right? I mean, one of the big secrets is everybody thinks that software uh, is generated at foundries, uh, you know, sort of from scratch. And one of the things you pointed out was what's really brilliant about our adversaries is that these come actually from a lot of open source libraries, right? I mean, it comes from GitHub, a lot of it. Talk to us about how and how perniciously, and Carl Wagner talked about this as well, formerly of the uh, Central Intelligence Agency, and now, uh, you know, brilliant entrepreneur, and we're going to have him on the program as well. Talk to us a little bit about how bad software actually gets into even the most sophisticated systems from in rather mundane or maybe lazy ways. Yeah, but so there's two parts to understand. I think, Bago, you summarized this pretty well. The overwhelming majority of programmers today, uh, many of them are fantastic, but they are copy and paste artists. So they want to take things that have been built by other folks and weave them in to the programs they're building. And as a result, 
Uh, just like a chef in a kitchen doesn't make 80 or 90% of the ingredients he or she uses when making the dish, your programmers are not making 80 or 90% of the software components in their programs. And where they're getting those components uh, isn't from a safe and secure site. Rather, they get it from a very public source known as GitHub. The problem with that, although GitHub is itself quite a valuable space for collaboration, some of those collaborators are from really adversarial places. And these guys aren't dumb. So they're not coming out with crummy products for you to then copy and put into your program. They're coming out with some really, really useful uh, components so they get widely used. What they don't tell you and what they don't show you is in that code, they have hidden uh, the ability to send data back to themselves, to take control of your program, really to do all those nasty things that the hackers like to do. So they come up with something valuable, they put it out there, convince the market to use it, and now they have the go button on all sorts of technologies that we didn't know they had the go button on. Um, let's uh, talk uh, a little bit also about the hardware uh, piece of this, right? I mean, you also noted in your uh, presentation uh, that, right, Huawei, ZTE, uh, these companies are smart enough to know, oh, wow, you know, we can't have our name on these chips. So they actually go to the factory next to them and say, hey, can, can we just use your name on our, on our products or, or get even more nondescript? And the problem is, this is across our entire United States military ecosystem. And these switches and chips do regularly communicate home. Um, you know, I, I've joked in the past that the Chinese may actually have a better snapshot of the health of our military systems maybe than we do, uh, in part because they're able to monitor some of this stuff uh, in, in real time uh, as well. And there was a great presentation from Sai Alba of the Piliero Maza law firm uh, on, on some of the legal issues uh, sur surrounding this. How do we get through the sheep dipping of this hardware at the end of the day, right? Because uh, there is a uh, there is a a recognition and also right the good news is this administration looks like they're really going to push people on this on the other hand this administration is really going to push people on this right and and this you know and and we don't know what's in these things right um you know you're talking about you know drilling deep to actually be able to get the visibility right now there are folks who are assuming that you know this has a major prime's name on it and has a major prime stock and part number not recognizing that actually four levels down, the, the hardware may actually be Chinese in origin, right? I mean, how do we get through this and how do you maintain a level playing field, right? Because this could get very uneven, very fast, given what, you know, an inspection is like $70,000. Uh, the reporting of it is $30,000 for a lot of smaller companies. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So there's a couple things to look at here that are, that are really important. The first thing to understand is that our adversaries don't give two squats about our regulations. So if we say no ZTE, it's in their business interest to cut a deal with the manufacturer next door for them to paint a different uh, manufacturer's name on that chip. And that is precisely what happens. And if you're three levels back in the supply chain, it is in your interest to close your eyes, take those chips that you're not absolutely sure came from Taiwan. They probably came from Shenzhen uh, because that's going to be cheaper for you. So we need to understand that uh, a lot of folks in this market have really strong financial interests to make money doing this, and they don't give two, two squats about our regulations. Now, to actually uncover this and deal with this, there are a couple things that can be done, and I think the market is beginning to coalesce around some some sort of early leaders in this. Uh, selfishly, we, we hope to be one of them um, at Fortress. But but really what they're doing is they're saying, hey, I, I can't validate that everything in the world, whether is safe or not. But what I can do is I can start to create part lists of things that I know are safe. So when I'm sourcing, 
I can go to those places. Conversely, when we talk about the bigs and making sure that those folks are doing the right things, you know, you may feel like, hey, I bought this this switch from Cisco or or some other provider, and that's really who manufactured that thing. The, the the really important piece to understand there is these big companies, and not for any negative reasons, what they're doing is they're integrating parts that they've sourced from other places. So it's pretty typical to open up a box and find 40, 50, 60 manufacturers, many of whom come from or are themselves adversarial to the United States. So those supply chains are just beginning to change. Uh, and hopefully here in the near future, there will be a wider aperture, a marketplace for more secure products coming from the United States or NATO countries, folks that really share our values and interests. John, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Absolute pleasure uh, having you on and your thought leadership on this issue, because I know, uh, you know, the, the, the ship is turning and it takes time. And I should commend everybody. Uh, we spoke last week to Chris Cleary, as well as uh, uh, Josh O'Sullivan of Ardalist. And, and Chris was the uh, featured uh, speaker. Chris, of course, the uh, uh, principal cyber advisor uh, to the Navy and made the case it's important for the cyber community to not just talk to the cyber community, but to talk outside the cyber community and to drive home why these things uh, matter. Because as a t- the, the community has a tendency of talking to itself in its own jargon and its own lingo. And every once in a while, the strategic leaders on the outside of that cyber ring have a tendency of sort of tuning out and being like, I don't know, they started to talk cyber jargon and I, I didn't really get it. Uh, as, as opposed to keeping everybody's attention focused on it's about the software, it's about the data, it's about the hardware, origin matters, provenance matters, uh, and there's a lot of stuff, you know, and laziness matters. And as you pointed out, it's going to cost money to fix, right? It, it, there's no magic wand to this at this point. We're going to have to spend money and real money. Yeah, absolutely, Vago. So there's no getting away from this. If you want to be secure, and we do, we're going to have to put dollars after it. I think there's a recognition of that amongst leadership, and that is starting to break into the folks in that sort of broader national security realm. John, thanks very much. Everyone is a contributor at Northrop Grumman, and every day is an opportunity to help defend our nation and our allies. Visit our careers page at ngc.com to learn about joining the Cyber and Intelligence Mission Solutions team.